this is the Edinburgh Reporter podcast and today I'm with Roddy Martin. Roddy, you're Mr. Festival and Mr. Edinburgh and Mr. Everything and now you've written another book and this one is about DeMarco's Edinburgh and if there's anybody more connected with the festival than you, it's perhaps Ricky DeMarco. But uh, this uh, is uh, wonderfully timed just before the festival that you've, uh, you're, you're bringing this out that it's being published. Um, and it's, um, it's a ta the tale of a couple of a couple of boys and the festival. That's how I'm thinking of it. But you have to tell me what uh, what the aim of your book was. <laughs> That's very, very flattering, Phyllis. Um, the situation came about really because um, Lewis Press wanted, I, I believe, to do some sort of homage to Richard DeMarco, who's 93 this year which is remarkable. And of course, Ricky suddenly came up with the idea of doing two schoolboys. He was 18 years old, um, actually 17 years old in 1947, at the very first Edinburgh Festival, and he was there. I was he's born... Been to, and he's been to everyone ever since. He always tells that Absolutely, story. and, <laughs> and I, I was born that year, you see. So, um, but when 16 years later I was a schoolboy at Edinburgh Academy, he was at, he was at uh, Leith Academy, um, and that's when he really... I think by the, by the time he was 18 years old, he was um, running the Camera Obscura up in the Royal Mile. Very young to do that, but um, anyway, he meant, met... Uh, um, and satire of the three estates. They were producing that that year, and he was completely mesmerized by everything that went, was going on. In 1963, he founded, he was one of the founders of the Travers Theatre here in Edinburgh, but I was a schoolboy um, running a school magazine at Edinburgh Academy with some friends. And one, one day we just said, there's all this stuff going on in Edinburgh, it's so exciting, why don't we just launch a magazine? God, the arrogance of us, I mean, it's astonishing, but we had, um, one of us, Nick Oppenheim, was very good at selling advertising. I edited the magazine, and then John Creer, as father, had a printing works done in Leith McKenzie and Story. And so we decided that uh, we'd go to John Mingis, which is a big retailer for, for newspaper magazines, and they thought this was quite funny, these teenagers. So they said they'd sell the magazine, a weekly magazine, for six pence. And we, we managed to borrow, another of our team had a father who owned an office, a, a, a basement in William Street, so we set up an office there. We thought we were terribly grown up, and we got access to the press bureau, and a lovely man called, called um, Jim Cowie, called James Cowie, anyway, he was the press officer, and he gave us carte blanche. And of course, none of us were old enough to buy a drink at the bar, but uh, you know, all the other journalists looked at us with sort of benign amusement. We were befriended, curiously enough, by people like Emilio Coya, who was even then coming over from Glasgow to do the festival drawings for the Scotsman. Um, Larry Adler used to hang around, and we became friends with him. And anyway, we, we, we got tickets to almost everything and access to almost everything. Now, my big scoop was I went to the Writers' Conference that year, and... Um, there was Sir Laurence Olivier, and I sort of summoned up the courage. I mean, I was spotty and thin and wore spectacles in those days, and I walked up to him and I said, excuse me, Sir Laurence, may I interview you? And he looked to me up and down, and he said, I don't do interviews, and he turned his back on me and walked off. I was absolutely mortified, and, and then I thought, I got a tug at my sleeve, and a voice said, would you like to interview me? 
and I looked, and it was David Frost. And of course, David Frost, for my generation, was so much more exciting than rude old Sir Lawrence. So I then went and had lunch with um, uh, David in, in, the, in the George Hotel here, and I did my interview, and I got my scoop. We, we went to see uh, Yehudi Menuhin in the, in the Caledonian Hotel, where he was doing his yoga, and we did an interview with him. All the sort of passing dignitaries and people we got access to, and that's what really started me off thinking I wanted to be a journalist. That's amazing that you could do that without computers, without online, mm. without any of the mm. um, technology that we have today, that yes. you were able to mm. do that. You must have all been incredibly good writers and sellers of advertising. Well, it was Hotmail. It was hot, you, I yeah. mean, in those days, it, no, when I say Hotmail, I mean, it was, we had printing blocks ah. and type. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and it was astonishing. We, well, I learned a bit about the printing industry as a result too, you see. But reverting so to Ricky, um, the thing about Ricky is that he was caught up in that first Edinburgh Festival with Kathleen Ferrier and the, you know, Vienna Symphony Orchestra and all these extraordinary, I mean, it was the whole concept of the festival was so exciting because it was just after the war, everything in Edinburgh was black. I don't know if you remember the sort of black building, the soot black buildings everywhere. It was a dour old city up in the north of Britain. And of course, Rudolf Bing, who'd come, uh, um, uh, he fled from Vienna, Jewish to get, you know, in 1936, he came to England and he, he started Kleinborn. And he had this idea of starting a festival um, somewhere in Britain to sort of heal the wounds of war and to bring Europe together. And he um, wanted to do it in Oxford, but they turned him down. Astonishing story that actually, and he then um, Harvey Wood was an, on the committee, and he suggested Edinburgh. So they came and looked at Edinburgh, and it was a question of getting some money together. Um, and they needed some seed money, and the Countess of Rosebery of that time was um, on the committee, and she went home to her husband at Dalmini and said, "Oh dear, we've got to raise all this money to do the seed money." And he said, "Oh," he said, "Our horses just run." that won the derby, Ocean Swell. Would you like a check? So it was a horse that funded the Edinburgh Festival. Is that the horse that's outside the house? You know, there's yes. a, that, that, that's the, 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 the statue there. It's the derby winner. Yes, yes. Oh, that's the one. Oh, so that's, yes. you have to go and pay homage to that. Well, I say they should have a statue in Edinburgh because I mean, it, was, it was a wonderful thing. Absolutely. But um, so the, the book itself is split into parts, of course, <laughs> and yes, um, Ricky, who's never short of a word or two, has uh, the first part, and uh, his take is always from the Italianate um, yep. angle in some way or shape or form, and then we have yours. And, um, but the photographs, which I'm really most interested in, there's an awful lot of photographs in here you always have a camera, or now your iPad with you, and you've always been yes. on. So does Ricky, mind you. He always has a camera with him. You're always taking photographs. But some of these photographs are just tremendous. I loved the one of you with Faye Presto in the back of the <laughs> car. I need you to tell me about that uh, that story, I think, uh, Roddy, because um, you know you were in the festival cavalcade, I think, well, with her in the, in the back seat. True. I, um, Looks like a triumph stag to me, wasn't it? It was. Uh, the thing is, the great, the great joke there is it broke down. Oh, Lord. Now, the thing about taking part in a, in a parade is that you can only drive at about sort of four miles per hour. So 
And of course, the, the, en like the engine overheated. So just after that photograph was taken, we had to get out and push it. <laughs> <laughs> it was so That's humiliating. That's like but the they thought it was probably part of, you thought it was yeah. part of the stunt, you know. Yes, yes. But no, she was sitting up in the back with Harvey, her white rabbit in a, in a hat, and okay. sort of waving to the crowds. And I subsequently became um, a judge at the Festival Cavalcade under Brian Leishman. Um, who was organising it. Yes, yeah. I know, it was great so fun. That was a very good thing, wasn't it? But, you know, there are lots of wonderful photos in here um, showing the festival, um, you know, in, in many guises over the years. And it's kind of a pity in some ways yeah. that our, the, the, the 75th has been and gone. Yes, know, yes. And I was so sorry that technology in my youth was okay. I was, I was taking photographs when I was 15 or so. But um, the quality of the imagery, I had a dark room in my bedroom, in a cupboard in my bedroom. I used to print up my own pictures. But I'm so sorry that I didn't have the technology I have now or then because yes. I could have done so much better. <laughs> Some but, the, but it's the people who you, that you've got in these photographs, I think. That's, that's the thing. I mean, well, that's interesting, Sean, particularly Sean for Sean Connery yeah. and Oberon Waugh and Tina Brown. Oh, gosh. Sitting in the middle. You know, that um, and that was in 1973 mm. at a, a performance of The Domestic Beast, whatever that, that was. What but there's another one here with um, Ricky and um, Sean Connery, or Tommy, of course, as he Tommy Connery. Tommy yes. Connery, as you you guys would uh, would call him, and um, and of course the late great Jim Haynes. Jim now, Haynes. This is a. It's not really meant as a complete history of the festival. It's meant as. No. It's really much more of a personal account. It's a personal account, and it started off because Ricky thought about this whole idea of the two schoolboys. But then you know what Ricky's like. He's very. Well, he gets carried away with things, and it didn't really. I mean, the book changed. <laughs> I mean, I was caught. I was caught a bit unawares because I went up to see him, and then um, Gavin from Lewis turned up and put a contract in front of me, which I signed really without looking. And he, I said, "Well, we've got a year to write this." Oh, we'd like it by the 30th of June, he said, and I gulped because that was back. I mean, the meeting we I went to was back in April. So anyway, it was, and Ricky then said, oh, I've got a lot of my stuff already, you already know, written, written etc. Yeah. So yes. I, had, I had actually started my memoirs, which I was ambivalent about because I wasn't sure if I'd ever published them or not. But anyway, I redid them. Okay. So I was able to mm. take out stuff about, um, you know, Ru Rudolf Noreev and various other people. And also the 369 Gallery, which I was a trustee of for yes. 10 years, yes. which again, I thought, was connected in the festival because we had festival exhibitions. Yeah. I think one of the, the, the big problems with uh, Ricky and the Edinburgh Festival was he was, in, he, he, he was in charge of the visual arts in the Edinburgh Festival from Lord Harwood through John Drummond, through P uh, Peter Diamond, John Drummond, and then, uh, then um, uh, Frank, Frank Dunlop. And then when Brian McMaster became director of the Edinburgh Festival, he said, we're not interested in the visual arts. So that then enabled Ricky to go off a bit AWOL and he was doing all his um, Macbeth on Inchcombe Island. And, and over in, over in mm -hmm. Kakadi on the cliffs of Ravens, Ravenscray Castle, it's astonishing. He's got some wonderful and wild ideas, oh, hasn't he? Absolutely I mean, right. Many more people like, uh, like Ricky DeMarco. But you know, you, you've given it You've given it his name. The title is DeMarco's Edinburgh, but it's very much your recollection. I, I felt rather, as I say in, in my introduction, I said Ricky's, Ricky's 
is mainstream, mine's slipstream, because Ricky's been there all the time. And in a way, I've said it in my introduction that DeMarco's Edinburgh was my Edinburgh, because yes. as a, as a schoolboy, I used to hang out in the DeMarco Gallery in Melville Crescent, and it was so exciting, because all these people like David Hockney, all sorts of rather curious, wonderful, well-known figures were passing through the place, and Ricky's always been like that. He's been a yeah. magnet. He is. He's a magnet for people as well as for And um, of course so ideas. well known throughout Europe and when I was yes. in North Carolina I was um, taken to a barbecue with some weavers and one of them said to me, oh we've got to come to Edinburgh, we, we've got to meet this guy DeMarco and I said, oh Ricky, oh you know him? I don't believe you. you know, everyone already knows Ricky DeMarco. <laughs> so. And the final question I'm going to ask you is really about um, Charlie Ellis who, who writes our coffee column for us yes. in our paper. And Dr. Charlie Ellis has written a whole chapter here yes. uh, for us about um, taking the long view, what drives Richard DeMarco's relentless search for truth and beauty. Yes. Uh, that was a curious thing because I, when, when, we s when I set off working with Ricky, I knew nothing about this. But then suddenly Richard produced Charlie Ellis and he'd written 8,000 words. <laughs> And it I, had to be cut down a bit then, I'm sure. Well, I think we more or less most of it in because I was a bit sceptical to begin it. And then I read it and mm. I thought, well, actually, this is awfully good. Yes. And he does. He captures Ricky. Yeah. He captures the whole essence of him. So we put that in. And I think, it, as I, I would say, Charlie Ellis, he's, he's a younger generation, but very impressive. And I yes. thought he writes beautifully. Similarly, Ricky came up with the idea of doing a timeline, timeline at the back. And my heart sank when he initially said that. But then when he put it in front of me, I thought, well, this is absolutely fascinating because he talks about his 93 years. But it's not all about him. It's all about the world around him and, you know, um, Germany yep. going to war and um, little facets. And also, I think it's, it's rather poignant, but, you know, rest in peace, um, Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, R.I.P. He must have taken this from his diaries or something, I guess, then, because it is... Uh, very much um, in 1962, Richard DeMarco, appointed lecturer in design for evening classes at Edinburgh College of Art. Yes. My goodness, he's done so many things. But 1963, I think, is perhaps when you came into mm. uh, in, in, came into the festival, and of course, that was the year that John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas. Yes, and um, Aldous Huxley, John Cocteau, and C.S. Lewis all died. Um, but Ricky, meanwhile, was vice chair of the Traverse Theatre Club until 1967 and the Writers' Conference, all these things which are in history but very important. Um, that's quite a nice synopsis, actually, at the back, isn't it? I reckon it? so. It's, it's, it's a wonderful sort of... I love journeys, and yes. as I always think of this book, in a way, it's a, it's a journey of two schoolboys because it's journeys through our lives Absolutely, and yes. the things that have happened to us. And, of course... You know, you get older, you forget about things, but then somebody talks about something and you suddenly remember and you think, well, that's fascinating. Got to put it down on paper. On paper, yes. And of course, uh, yes, it's, it's, it's very much, I mean, his life really has been bound up um, by, with the festival um, mm -hmm. all these years. And uh, no doubt we will see him somewhere at the festival. But in the meantime, you're actually having a launch of this book and that is on the... First... Oh, uh, uh, tenth, tenth of tenth of August. Of, uh, tenth of August, and it's down at the Boardwalk Beach Club. Beach Club. I always want to call it a cafe, and I get a row if I, I do. Know, I so know. It's down. <laughs> at, it's the tenth of August at Boardwalk Beach Club, and people can sign up online on Eventbrite. Yes, six o'clock. Six o'clock. See you there. Yes, bless you.
Thanks.